on Textbooked. There has not been a time in American history where the court has reached out to take away a personal right that it had previously recognized a right, and of course I'm speaking about abortion, the courts overturned cases before, of course, but to overturn its own precedent after almost half a century that gave recognized rights to people is extraordinary and there's no precedent for it. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is the podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Carly Shepard. And you're listening to Untextbooked. We in the United States have lived without Roe v. Wade for several months now. Maybe you've seen the effects of this firsthand in your communities. The repeal of this landmark case rocked the nation. But today's guest argues that the groundwork for this shocking Supreme Court decision began many months prior. Yeah, not only did this decision reflect a shift in the court's judgment historically, but also a shift in public perception. The Supreme Court was established to protect justice for all, but now many worry that it's serving a strategic conservative agenda. Bias in the court, regardless of political leaning, is a concept that worries me. The overturn of Roe v. Wade was a striking reminder that the court's decisions can dramatically alter our personal lives and liberties. In order for our justice system to function as intended, the Supreme Court has to be trustworthy. Linda Greenhouse observed the court professionally for several decades, and she warns that this is no longer the case. Therefore, with trust in the Supreme Court rapidly declining, it's important that we have conversations about how the court got here and where it's headed. That's why I'm so honored to have Dr. Greenhouse here with me today to do just that. The Supreme Court was created to uphold the Constitution and serve all Americans fairly. But what happens if the court follows its own agenda? Can justice prevail in a biased court? On this episode of Untextbooked, Carly interviews Linda Greenhouse, author of Justice on the Brink, A Requiem for the Supreme Court. The book charts the historic transformation of the court system and what recent political changes mean for modern democracy. Thank you so much for being here. I'm I'm so excited for the opportunity to talk with you. And I'm so looking forward to, to this conversation. I found Justice on the Brink to be so fascinating. And I'm so, so excited to feature your work on a textbook this season. Well, thank you. So to begin, you've reported and commented on the Supreme Court for several decades now, and you're certainly regarded as a leading voice in your field. I'm curious then how your long-term observation of the Supreme Court has informed your understanding of its evolution kind of from a historical standpoint. As an expert in your field, did you feel that there was a visible progression that led the court to where it is now? Or did the, quote, rise of Amy Coney Barrett and the events that were associated with her appointment come as a surprise to you at all? Well, there are many ways to answer that good question. On one level, you could say that the court we now have is a kind of regression to the mean, by which I mean that 
you know, the kind of romantic vision that many progressives have hung on to against all evidence that the court was democracy's friend and was equality's friend, notions that stem from the high point of the Warren court. She's referring to the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren in the late 1950s to 60s. It's considered to be the most liberal court in U.S. history. One of the most significant cases during Chief Warren's service was Brown v. Board of Education. You might recognize that as the case which desegregated public schools. The Warren Court itself was rather an anomaly. The court has not always been democracy's friend and certainly has not always been equality's friend. So we finally have come to the point where the legacy of the Warren Court, in terms of creating a more inclusive United States of America, that's over. And we see something that on the one hand is startlingly different from the kind of court we're used to, but on the other hand, maybe isn't so different. It's just not the court we want. It's so interesting. I'm very curious about this idea that both the events surrounding Barrett herself and her appointment, uh, but also the events that are outlined in this chronicle of the 2020 term season were exceptional in different ways, that they stood out from this historical narrative of the Supreme Court. I'm curious, and I'd love to hear a bit about what made Amy Coney Barrett so exceptional in the ways that you pointed out. In the prologue of your book, you called Barrett the chosen one. What are the factors, kind of in your perspective, that made her nomination so unique? Well, what I meant by that was the religious right, of course, a very important part of the Trump base, had had their eyes on her for years, even though she's not very old, as Supreme Court justices go. She was a law professor at Notre Dame, very deeply religious Catholic, and played in those circles. There was a vacancy uh, on the Supreme Court quite early in Donald Trump's term when Justice Anthony Kennedy retired, and some people said, oh, you should appoint Amy Barrett, who he had already appointed to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, an important federal appeals court based in Chicago, whose jurisdiction includes Indiana, where, which is where she was living. You should appoint Amy Barrett. And Trump is reported to have said, no, not yet. I'm saving her for Ginsburg. That's pretty disturbing. Definitely. Obviously, he meant Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not going to survive his presidency. And of course, we know she didn't. She died in September 2020. Had she lived another four months, we'd be living in kind of a different constitutional landscape. So, you know, that was an extraordinary thing. And Ruth Ginsburg had not yet been buried when Trump nominated Amy Barrett. So I say the chosen one, there was a sense of inevitability looking back on it. And she was picked to serve the mission of the religious right, the far right. And as we've seen, that's what she did. Hers was one of the crucial votes that supported Justice Samuel Alito's majority opinion in Dobbs that overturned Roe against Wade. And, you know, I would have been interested to hear what Amy Barrett had to say about that, other than the mere fact of giving that majority her vote. She didn't say a word should say a word. Yeah, I'm processing that one. That's such an excellent observation. I'd like to talk a bit about the significance of your book's title. The idea of justice being on the brink was something that really resonated with me and was something I had a lot of curiosity about. You explain throughout your book that 
both our country's judiciary system, but also American citizens more broadly, faced a certain brink, right, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and Amy Coney Barrett was appointed, we kind of saw this brink function as a bit of a turning point with potential to change the Supreme Court operations and also the way that the Supreme Court was perceived. And like you've mentioned, a few years have passed now. And in ways, it feels like we're approaching a new brink with the overturn of Roe v. Wade and Dobbs' decision and the emergence of a lot of conversation about what's going to be reconsidered next. As a young person, it's very interesting that for as long as I've been learning about the Supreme Court, justice has always seemed to be kind of on the brink in one way or another. Is justice always on the brink of faltering in your understanding? Or is the instability that we're feeling now really atypical? Yeah, I mean, I can think of two ways to answer that question. One is, of course, the court has complete, essentially complete control over the cases that it decides to hear. And I talk a lot in the book about the act of, of choosing, the act of setting the, the court's agenda, because when the court sets its own agenda, it's really setting the country's agenda. When the court decided in May of 2021 to hear the Mississippi abortion case, they didn't have to do that. It was quite surprising that they did, actually. But that meant that abortion was going to be front and center in our political, social, cultural conversations. So what I mean by that is typically, not in the abortion case, the court just took because it felt like it, but most cases reach the court because the lower courts are in conflict over the legal question that's presented in the case. So some federal courts of appeals have gone one way, some federal courts of appeals have gone another, and the court agrees to hear the case because the justices feel there needs to be a national rule so that the law isn't different in New York and Arizona or whatever. So to that sense, justice is always on the brink because two or more federal courts, we have to assume a certain amount of intelligence and goodwill on the part of the judges who decided these cases, have come out in different ways. So that means kind of by definition, these are hard questions without obvious answers. So that's one way of saying justice on the brink. The deeper way, which I think is what you're reaching for, is that there has not been a time in American history, to my knowledge, and I haven't seen any commentary to the contrary, where the court has reached out to take away a personal right that it had previously recognized, a right, and of course I'm speaking about abortion, that's fundamental to the ability of a big segment of the population to fully participate in society, the right to control one's reproductive life. The courts overturn cases before, of course. Sometimes we think that's a great thing. Sometimes it doesn't matter all that much. But to overturn its own precedent after almost half a century that gave recognized rights to people is extraordinary, and there's no precedent for it. So that's certainly a new brink then, right? One that we're encountering now. You mentioned this surprising decision that came out with Dobbs as being exceptional, especially from a historical standpoint. Was this at all something that you saw coming throughout the process of writing your book? Or was this an element similar to Barron's appointment that caught you by surprise? Oh, yeah, I saw it coming. I mean, I've seen it coming for years, but Barron herself, in her private capacity before she became a federal judge, had signed a number of advocacy statements calling Roe against Wade, you know, basically the worst decision ever. I can't exactly quote it, but I mean, it's obvious where she was coming from. What really sealed the deal was, as I suggested, 
earlier, the court's decision to hear the Mississippi case. So just for a little bit of background on that. So Mississippi had passed a law and many red states were passing laws that were aimed at deliberately challenging Roe versus Wade at providing a vehicle for the Supreme Court to get its hands on the issue. Because of course, the court can't just wake up in the morning and say, okay, today we'd like to deal with abortion. They need a case. They need an actual controversy as part of the jurisdiction of the federal courts. So Mississippi passed this law that banned abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which is a couple of months before the time of fetal viability, which was the firewall that Roe against Wade said in 1973, that the Planned Parenthood against Casey decision in 1992 reaffirmed. So, of course, the lower federal courts had to declare the Mississippi law unconstitutional because it was flagrantly unconstitutional, no doubt about that. And in fact, the lower federal courts, even the very conservative ones, like the one that dealt with the Mississippi law, the Fifth Circuit, had declared this whole swath of Republican-passed anti-abortion laws unconstitutional. And for years, the court hadn't touched them because there was no conflict in the circuits of the kind I described earlier. There was no reason that the court needed to weigh in and resolve some ongoing dispute among the lower courts. This time they took the Mississippi case. Mississippi appealed the Fifth Circuit decision and the court took it. The only reason to take it was because the court wanted to change the law. Because under the current law, there was no reason to take it. The law was unconstitutional, period, full stop. The court wanted to change the law. And that was not an automatic action by the court. The court on its website, supremecourt.gov, anybody who wants to look at it, posts a whole procedural history of every pending case. So, of course, every week I would say, what's up with the Dobbs case? And I would go look at the little chart that they put up for every pending case. And week after week, the court would take this case into its private weekly conference where the justices alone, no secretaries, no law clerks, meet around a table to discuss the pending cases. And every week they did it with the Dobbs case and every week nothing happened. So when they finally agreed to hear the case announced in May of 2021, that they would hear the case, it was obvious what they wanted to do. It was completely obvious. So you refer to it as a surprising decision. And it's interesting because there's a way that you can be not surprised, but still shocked, right? We're not surprised, but we're shocked. And that's how I feel. I wasn't surprised, but I was still shocked to be alive on the day when they actually did it. So that's that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, that's such a better way of putting it, I think. Not surprised, but certainly shocking as a decision. And it's interesting to think about what we do with that shock, what reaction that's garnered. And it's been interesting observing the reaction that that feeling of shock has sparked on, on a broad scale and on a personal level. In a lot of respects, I've seen the shock related to the Dobbs decision, but also kind of a growing lack of trust in the justice system contribute to a lot of widespread conversation about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. There have been calls for reform on different levels, and then even to the extreme points of, you know, picket signs post-Dobbs saying abort the court. I'm curious about the extent to which this wariness about the Supreme Court's authority is a new occurrence. Do you feel in your understanding that the court has always been subjected to questions about its validity? 
Or do you feel that this response related to Dobbs has been a unique response to an equally unique set of events that have occurred in the court's recent terms? Well, of course, the court's always made some segment of the population very unhappy. When the court ordered an end to racial segregation in the public schools, that decision was met in a big swath of the country by defiance, right? And when the court said that it violated the Constitution to have organized prayer in the public schools, that was met with defiance in school systems that simply didn't adhere to it. So people have been questioning the court forever. But I think the polling now shows a difference. So the last Gallup poll showed extreme polarization in the country, not entirely, of course, caused by the Supreme Court. One's views of the Supreme Court reflects polarization. But the percentage of self-identified Democrats who have trust in the Supreme Court, 13%, the lowest that Gallup has ever recorded for any political party. And for Republicans, a majority think the court's okay. And what's quite interesting is that there's a divergence now between men and women. So as recently as two years ago, if you ask the question, do you have faith in the Supreme Court? There was no difference between men and women. It was the same. Now, I forget the exact numbers, but it's a measurable gap. Many more men trust the Supreme Court than women. Women have rapidly, really rapidly, lost faith in the Supreme Court for you know, the obvious reason. So we are seeing something different. I think we really are. Do you have faith in our court system? Do you? Mm, I plead the fifth. So you've personally dedicated your career to covering the court and informing just these types of conversations with the type of expertise that I'll point out has earned you a Pulitzer Prize in journalism, among other numerous awards. As we're continuing in our conversation, as we look back on the progression of the Supreme Court and forward towards brinks to come, I was wondering if you had any advice for students and citizens who are entering these types of conversations, who are just now beginning to discuss the Supreme Court or are observing the court for the first time in its current state, in this state of kind of exceptionalism in the ways that we've discussed. Yeah. And part of your question, I think, is, you know, sort of what can anybody do now about this? I mean, certainly we need to pay attention to the court and it's hard to do journalism about the court is a little spotty, usually, unless there's some major case. However, it's a little easier now to follow things. For instance, I think a lot of students, not only law students, I think college students, too, have discovered a blog called SCOTUS blog. So SCOTUS, S-C-O-T-U-S, stands for Supreme Court of the United States. SCOTUSblog.com, I guess it is, which explains the court on kind of a daily basis and gives access to a lot of resources and interesting other kinds of blog posts and writing about the court. Just sort of pay attention. But one thing that strikes me with Dobbs specifically, when people have said to me, you know, what can we do? And I know there's, you know, marches and demonstrations and outbursts of anger and that sort of thing. And, you know, that's all fine in a democracy. Nothing against it, although I don't think it's going to be terrifically effective. What I think is really going to be effective is publicizing every trauma and tragedy that befalls a woman who wants or needs a pregnancy termination and can't get it. I mean, there have been some just terrifying and heartbreaking 
stories recently about, you know, a woman in dire medical condition, pregnancy gone bad, presents herself in a hospital and they won't treat her because even though it's obvious that under standard medical practice, what she needs is to end the pregnancy, the doctors are afraid. This is a crisis. This is really a crisis. And the more we are confronted with these stories, the more the country will realize the consequences of what the court has done, will realize the fact that abortion care is medical care, is standard medical care, is common medical care. And that's the way I think of propelling the conversation and keeping the issue front and center because people respond to personal stories. We know that, and it's not a put down of people. It's our human nature. And we need to hear the stories of women and the kind of distress that this opinion has created. I think that's excellent advice. I mean, to stay informed and keep the conversation going is is essential. I am curious with the direction you see the court moving. I mean, we've talked now about the progression that we've already observed throughout history and then throughout the past couple terms within the Supreme Court. But as such an expert in your field, I'm sure you have anticipations for where the court will continue to move. If these types of conversations are sustained and if citizens remain informed and remain active, do you think we have reason to be hopeful for improvement in areas of the court that we see as as shortcoming or in subject areas that, that we would like to see reform in? I don't actually right now have a lot of hope. I mean, people are coming up with various ideas for how to, quote, fix the court. They're not going to solve the problem. I think what people need to do is focus at the state level. I mean, after all, the court has not forbidden abortion. They've just taken away the right to abortion. So we have the states that are making themselves abortion sanctuaries, like New York, like Connecticut, New Jersey, where the state legislatures and the governors have stepped up and said, we're going to protect people. So it's really important who's in control of our states, who's in the governor's mansion, who's in the state legislature. That is super, super important going forward. So what do I see coming along with the court? So the majority of the court now has an agenda. That's clear. And also that's an insult. Judges aren't supposed to have agendas. They're just supposed to decide the tough legal questions that come their way. But these justices have agendas. What are their agendas? One is to greatly increase the role of religion in our public life and to make religion, as Justice Alito said in his speech in Rome a month or so ago, make it clear both as a matter of the Constitution and our political behavior that religion is special. And it trumps, I hate to use that word trump, but it trumps other kinds of claims, like the claim not to be discriminated against. And I don't think a majority of the public is on board for that. But the court is looking for cases that will enable them to anchor that notion of the exceptionalism of religion as opposed to any other human activity deeper and deeper. The court also clearly wants to get rid of affirmative action. They will probably do that in the cases that they're going to hear in October from challenging the admissions procedures at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The court is very wary of protecting voting rights. So there are a couple of voting rights cases where I think the court's going to cut back on protection of the vote. And the court is very hostile to 
kind of the modern structure of what is called the administrative state. So what does that term mean? It means that the executive branch of the government, even though the president is in charge, uh, you know, the president obviously can't do everything. So we have administrative agencies that are staffed by experts in the subject matter that these agencies are charged with dealing with. And to the view of a majority of the Supreme Court, that's gone too far. And these agencies have to be reeled back. We saw that happen in the Clean Air Act case that came down at the end of this term where the Environmental Protection Agency hadn't even gotten around to writing a new rule that was going to help shift the country from fossil fuel to alternative sources of energy. Hadn't even written the rule and the court reached out to say, by the way, you don't have the authority to do it. So that's a big part of what I see coming down the pike. That's very interesting. And I think your perspective is, is very valuable considering the expertise that you have in this area and the way that your anticipations are kind of informed by, by so much observation. It's interesting, this idea that the court is kind of in the habit of making history, whether intentionally or accidentally. Well, rarely accidentally, but intentionally in varying degrees. So it sounds from those predictions like we can anticipate a lot more history being made as the court evaluates and reevaluates decisions in its coming term. In your book, and considering the broader implications for what's going on in the court, is there any sentiment that you would like to be taken away above all else from Justice in the Brink? Is there an idea that's central or a sentiment of yours personally, whether derived during the season in which you were writing Justice on the Brink or, or derived since then, that you'd like to leave with listeners? I guess I would ask people to take the narrative as really raising questions about the role of the court. What do we think of justices who have an agenda? What do we think of a court that uses the great power that the country has given it, far beyond what the framers expected, actually, how it uses that power and what the I think what the book shows in the month-by-month chronology is exactly how that plays out in the crucible of real disputes, real cases, justices going at one another, profoundly disagree on what should be done, and that sort of thing. And so I think people come away with certainly a deeper understanding of the court, not as an abstraction up on a mountaintop, but as a place where nine people go to work. Of course, in the pandemic, they didn't go to work. They were working from home, but go to work and deploy this enormous amount of power that they have to define how we live in a democracy in the 21st century. That was definitely a theme that I enjoyed throughout Justice on the Brink. I won't ask you to speculate too far. Obviously, we can observe the external implications of new appointments on the court bench, but I really enjoyed your interpretation of how internal dynamics changed. What do you feel was maybe the most significant shift within the internal workings of the court, within the internal dynamics of the justices, as a product of Barrett's appointment, but other new appointments within a similar season? Well, it's the shutting out of Chief Justice Roberts as a person who, despite his very significant title, he's Chief Justice, not as many people think the title is Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, he's Chief Justice of the United States. That's a great big title. He's in charge of the entire judicial system. And he's got five people to his right who don't see things the way he does. He's a pretty unlucky 
guy in that respect. I mean, things were looking so great for him. And there's an irony to it. Had Hillary Clinton been elected in 2016 instead of Donald Trump, she would have filled the vacancy that Mitch McConnell had held open during that election year when he blocked President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland. A president Hillary Clinton would have filled that seat and would have, because it was a vacancy caused by the death of the most conservative member of the court, Justice Scalia, would have created a much more liberal court with a new Clinton appointee in the place of Justice Scalia. And Chief Justice Roberts would have been outflanked by five justices to his left. Little would he expect with the nomination and the election of Donald Trump in 2016 instead of Hillary Clinton that he would be outflanked by five justices to his right. I mean, that's an irony of history that is just pretty breathtaking. And and I think that's certainly been the major change in the inner workings of the court since that time. To what degree was or is the religious dynamic of the court, maybe as an extension of changing internal dynamics, unique from a historical standpoint? Is religion, as you as you pointed out in the case of Barrett, but also in the case of, of similar appointed justices, something that also sets this court apart from other courts that we've seen historically. Okay, so what you're kind of dancing around to be delicate is the fact that there's a majority of Roman Catholics on the Supreme Court, right? And let's just say that. And that's unusual. That's never happened before. And let's wonder why that is. It's not an accident. So every president since Ronald Reagan in 1980, and by the way, my book goes into this in great detail, has run on a platform calling for the appointment of judges and justices who would vote to overturn Roe against Wade, starting from 1980. Now, a president who wants to nominate somebody can't say, to the extent that we still have norms that govern political behavior, cannot say to a potential nominee, by the way, (laughs) you'd vote to overturn Roe, wouldn't you? And if a president would ask such a question, the potential nominee could not answer it. Again, assuming we have norms of behavior. So what to do? It's to use Catholicism as a proxy. And I don't mean just sort of any old Catholicism, conservative Catholicism. Catholicism in America is a big tent. And Catholic women have abortions at the same rate as anybody else. So I'm not suggesting that we assume that because somebody's a Catholic, he or she thinks thus and such about, you know, whatever. But there's a conservative wing of the Catholic Church from which all these conservative justices come. And they were chosen. Their religion is a proxy for the desire by a president to live up to that platform, which let's assume they believe in, to get at the abortion issue without having to put it front and center on the table. And it's an uncomfortable thing for people to talk about because, you know, we all like to be polite and we don't talk about somebody's religion or their finances or their sex life or whatever. But because religion, is now so important in the conversation that we're having about the court, we should label it and understand how it got to be the way it is. And to that point about about getting to be the way it is, I guess I'll add to my question. You note that this is this court is exceptional, especially in the Roman Catholic majority, but more broadly is has religion always dominated the Supreme Court conversation in the way that we're seeing now? It seems certainly uniquely relevant to discussions about abortion and other matters, but is this something that we can say is, is a historic theme? 
in court. I know you talk about legal contradictions throughout Justice on the Brink related to, to the free exercise clause. And so it certainly seems that religion has long characterized Supreme Court decision making, but is, is uniquely relevant to the current conversation. Well, one reason it's relevant is that, for instance, in the wake of the Obergefell decision in 2015, which recognized your right to same-sex marriage. So who objects these days to same-sex marriage? It's conservative religious people. And the court has made a project, certainly Justice Alito has been pretty out front about this, a project of carving out exceptions to same-sex marriage so that religious people who object to same-sex marriage don't have to deal with same-sex couples in their business affairs. So, for instance, a few years ago, people might remember the court had the case of the the Christian baker who wouldn't bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And that case went off on a kind of different ground and didn't really get at the issue. So for the coming term, the court has a case about a, a web page designer who wants to get into the business of designing wedding web pages, which are very popular these days with young couples. But she says, as a Christian, I can't possibly do business with same-sex couples who want to get married. And so she wants to be able to put up on her website, by the way, if you're a same-sex couple, don't come to me. I won't serve you for my religious reasons. And she was not allowed to do this under Colorado's anti-discrimination laws. So she brought a lawsuit. And so we see the court enabling religion to be injected into the heart of our cultural disputes. It's no longer same-sex marriage, yay or nay, but the country has moved on from that debate. There's more than you know a million people, according to the census, in same-sex marriages now in the country and many children being raised by same-sex parents. So most people have stopped having that debate, and the court is keeping it going by privileging religious objections. And the court also injected religion into people remember Obamacare. One of the requirements in Obamacare was that employers would have to provide contraception for their employees as part of the employer health plan without a copay. And the owner of the Hobby Lobby chain of craft stores said, oh, I can't possibly do that because my religion tells me that would make me complicit in sin. And the court ruled for him. So, you know, we just see, we see religion everywhere because the court has opened those doors and is holding those doors open. And it's a very divisive part of of what, what the court is currently doing in our country. Well, thank you so much for sharing that and for the entirety of this conversation. Again, it's been such a joy to talk to you, and we are so excited to be sharing your work and sharing your voice on a textbook this season. Thanks for having me, Carly. I've enjoyed our conversation. After that conversation, I'm curious, what'd you learn? Well, lots of things, but the first is the advice to stay informed and engaged. At a time when Supreme Court decisions feel especially far removed from the will of the general public, and as Dr. Greenhouse personally attested, there seems little reason for hope about the future of the court, it's so important to have conversations like these and ask critical questions about the institutions that shape our society. Secondly, I'm reminded that the overturn of Roe v. Wade was not an isolated incident. Justice on the Brink tells us that the decision was enabled in part by a strategic sequence of events in 2020. 
Our broader conversation today reveals that the decision evolved from decades of court history. Just as the Dobbs decision was a long time coming, its implications will be felt for some time to come. We are witnesses to a living history in this way, but we can be more than observers. As reproductive rights become increasingly threatened and new related issues are inevitably brought to court, we must do everything we can on state and community levels to create changes we wish to see and write the type of history we hope to leave behind. Thanks so much, Carly. Our producer, Carly Shepard, is a sophomore at Baylor University. Linda Greenhouse is a clinical lecturer and senior research scholar in law at Yale Law School. She's also a Pulitzer Prize winning writer for the New York Times. You can follow her Twitter at Greenhouse Linda. That's G-R-E-E-N-H-O-U-S-E-L-I-N-D-A. We've included a link to her work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we're traveling back in time. We'll wrap up the season by returning to some of our favorite moments. What is our job as historians? Our job is to diagnose. We are the medical doctors of society. We diagnose what has happened and point it out to people so they can see it because you can't fix it till you see it. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>